Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 10. And uh, we have a real special program for you this week, an excellent guest lined up. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. But before we turn to that, I want to do my little weekly spiel here, my little pitch. I think it's important to remind everybody that, you know, Counterpunch is truly independent media. And what we mean by that, by this word independent, is that we don't really exist within this controlled left matrix of the so-called media and alternative media, the pseudo-alternative media, as you might call it. I mean, if you look at some of the most critical issues of the last few years, Counterpunch has in many ways really stood apart from a lot of these other uh, so-called alternative outlets, and I think that's important. And part of of what we mean when we say independent is taking an independent position, but we also mean financially independent. This This is an outfit that is not funded by massive foundation grants. It's not funded by any powerful individuals through their largesse or anything like that. So it is really dependent upon you guys. And one of the ways that you can support this Counterpunch project is by uh, considering getting a print subscription to the magazine. Uh, The magazine is really, I think, an excellent source of information, of cultural critique, political analysis, all sorts of things that really I think you're not going to find anywhere else. And so uh, I'm a subscriber. I've been a subscriber since before I became part of the Counterpunch project. Project, and I think that uh, it's it's definitely worthwhile. Um, also, I mean, if you enjoy the material that you find on the website, you, you're you're going to like the print magazine. So you're getting something out of it. You're you're a financial supporter of what we're doing, and I think that's important. Um, if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to see it succeed and you want to see it uh, become more popular, give us a positive review on iTunes. That's actually really really important for driving the podcast up the list of recommendations. Bring it to the attention of more people, I think that that is actually surprisingly and, and, and shockingly quite important. Um, and also, just as a as a little announcement, if you haven't been following the developments with Counterpunch, there's a new version of the website that's going to be launched real soon, and uh, either next week or the week after that, most likely next week, we're going to have a guest on the program, and we're going to talk a little bit about the launch of the new website. So there are definitely uh, interesting developments happening with Counterpunch punch, uh, expanding what it is that it that it brings to you. And I think that all of that is really important. Now, with that being said, though, one of the other things that Counterpunch does is it brings you some of the most interesting, important, and um, I think, um, what, what should we call it, uh, alternative ideas in, in the form of books, in the form of publications. And we're lucky enough today to have Ron Jacobs on the program. Ron is the author of the new book, Daydream Sunset, uh, published by Counterpunch. Punch, and I'm going to talk to Ron today about a lot of these issues. And again, go on the website, find the book, buy this book. It's an excellent read. It's a quick read. It's really, really a lot of fun. So, uh, with that being said, Ron Jacobs, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Howdy. How are you doing? 
uh, doing well. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how much you listen to radio and, and, and podcast and such, but quite often they'll have authors on the program and they always lead in with the most general question of all. So tell us about your book and what's the book about? So I'm not necessarily going to do that, but for people who don't know about this book, who don't know the theme, again, the, the title is Daydream Sunset, the 60s counterculture in the 70s. Um, what what do you mean by the counterculture in the 70s? What um, What's so important about understanding the 60s in the context of the 70s? What I mean, well, basically the book itself is a radical perspective on um, on the counterculture of the 1960s and how it kind of got co-opted, dissipated, got bought off and just dis- just changed into something, one more commodity in capitalist America during the period of the 1970s. Um, I guess kind of what I do is I look at it from from my perspective, which like that's kind of when I came came of age. Uh, that's the pers- so a lot of it's through li- my understanding is through lived experience and just kind of the conversations I've had with friends for the last several decades while we were living it as we got older and looked back when I listened to certain music, you know, like for example, I was just out to see one of the uh, fairly well Grateful Dead concerts out in California. And, you know, it, it was interesting to kind of look at what the Grateful Dead started off and what they meant and, and now kind of how they're still trying to present themselves or are being presented as the last vestige of the counterculture. But even the Grateful Dead scene, which was always kind of um, a little more outside the mainstream, even when it was mainstream, um, is now one major corporate cash cow. And you could kind of see that. So basically what my book is kind of talking about is looking at that, um, looking at the importance of the counterculture, which in my mind was pretty much, well, it began as a white middle-class uh, subculture that came out of the beatniks and the jazz culture and even rock and roll um, from the 50s and transitioned into being, when it started meshing with the politics and so on in the late of of the new left and so on in the late sixties, it really became a pretty powerful force. And if nothing else, I would say it's the last, what we perceive of it, you know, there's the, there's the tie dye and like there's the grateful dead and there's the Beatles and so on. But in reality, it made some lasting um, changes in the way we perceive in the way we understand culture in the United States. And I kind of look at how, I, I guess the end result of the book or what I'm the p- time I'm talking about is when it happened as it was going from being a representative culture to being a commodity. And that's what I try to capture by looking at the remnants of the counterculture as they disappeared, but also as they existed and people attempted to save them. Um, during the 70s. Oh, for sure. And I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And one of the things that, you know, kept kept striking me as I was reading through the book, and I'm, I'm, of course, significantly younger, I'm born after this time period. And so for me, you know, the 60s and the early 1970s, this is presented by those who live through it oftentimes, and just in our general culture is almost like a mythological time period that we're supposed to, you know, think about with a sort of reverence in a quasi religious fashion. And I 
I think that, you know, reading through the book and, and, and reading your own personal experiences, it's so, you, you have a um, sort of an ability to humanize all of this and to kind of show some of the inconsistencies, the internal inconsistencies, some of the hypocrisies, some of these class distinctions. I think a lot of that kind of draws the curtain or, you know, pulls off the mask or whatever euphemism we want to say with regard to this mythology of the 60s and the early 70s. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. You're the same age as my son, so I can kind of like understand like your perspective because him and I even we converse about it even now and he's he doesn't get it but he does get it kind of you know kind of like a lot of younger folks do as in terms of the mythology I think it's something that you know Hollywood and and the media have used to sell it and it's also sanitized it it's taken out the ugly side you know it's taken out the the cops beating the shit out of people it's it's taken taken out the uh, it's taken out some of the um you know the racism that existed in the counterculture because since it was a primarily white white culture it's taken out some of the um the media sanitizing has taken out the ugly side of the drugs and so on and and while i don't i i try to look at it just you know i try to look at the whole whole picture and like i said i try to look at it i was pretty involved politically as well as in the counterculture in the 70s and uh i started off with the group that all the youth group of the um what ultimately became the RCP and they asked me to leave because of my petty bourgeois, you know, <laughs> my petty bourgeois tendencies, you know, and I was more than happy to, cause I wasn't going to give them up because that meant, you know, giving up weed and all that kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> but it, it's, you know, it, it, I, I guess the idea is that it, it represented, you know, when you commodify something, you know, you take out the parts you can't sell and the politics was something you couldn't sell the racism was something that wasn't pretty and you tried not to sell that at least in today's world um and also you can't get a copyright on a lot of just the way people were existing people who really did try to live outside the system you know yeah definitely and i think that 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 process of sanitizing that um sanitization for lack of a better word uh of of the 60s in general and of all of these movements that existed you know in the post war period i mean that's true of martin luther king if you look at martin luther king's legacy Absolutely. all of the radicalism is completely purged from the historical narrative i mean he's presented as sort of the you know the american black gandhi or something like this as opposed to the person who spoke out against imperialism and military and all of these other things. So that that process, I think, is very much uh, a part of not only the commodification, but sort of the the creation of historical narratives that don't challenge in any substantive way the establishment or the system. Absolutely. I mean, I think you can even see that in today. I, that's a th- good thing about the um, the Martin Luther King. When you think about the uh, the the movement for black liberation and against police brutality and p- police occupation of, of, of African and African American communities and other communities of color in the United States specifically. And now how after the massacre in the church down in Charleston, all of a sudden the whole movement has become about removing a symbol of racism, which is important, but it's not going to change the racism that exists within the system. So there you go. It's kind of like the sanitization continuing and making it something that, 
is relatively harmless and it's not going to change how things really work. Yeah, exactly. And 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 making it into a symbolic uh, a movement uh, around symbols Absolutely. rather than a movement around structures and institutions. Now, um one of the other things about this book for those people who haven't read it or or who aren't as familiar with with um well, with the book, uh is this theme of music, you know. I, I think that you've kind of you've woven together the the fabric of this narrative and I guess uh, to follow that metaphor, you're using music and rock music, especially as sort of the, the the stitching that holds it together. It's almost like a like a framework or an organizing principle. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, why did you do it? Why did you do that? Why did you use music in that way? And I mean, does that tell us something about how we should understand the importance of music to that time period? It certainly does. You know, when I was just writing the book, I I sat down and I started jotting down notes and so on kind of stuff I usually do when I begin to write. And it just seemed that the music came to the front of the of the narrative I was writing. And then as I thought about it, I realized there's so many multi there's so many levels of complexity regarding the music, the role of, you know, the role of political and establishment music um, that's being sold by major defense contractors, so on and so forth. And and as I looked at it and, and thought about it, you know, I, look, we, we could take just one, one, one musician. Let's take Bob Dylan. Um, he started the – Bob Dylan was the sound of revolution, even though he always claimed that he wasn't, you know, as he made his progress as a political protest singer um, in, in the spirit, you know, in the spirit of Woody Guthrie in the early 60s on to becoming, redefining what protest was um, when he became a rocker and so on. And then by the end of the 60s, he was he, he was putting out albums of country music that were basically just good, different kinds of country music. And then all of a sudden he came back in the middle of the, of the um, decade with um, the Desire album, which, is, which leads off with the song about Hurricane Carter. And it was a major protest song. Uh, and pissed off a lot of the a lot of people in power because he was doing what he does best when it comes to protest which is calling out the hypocrisy of the system and the police and then by the end of the decade he was a born again christian uh so it's kind of rep- in that way he's he, just Dylan himself is a metaphor for the journey that a lot of people who are in the counterculture whether they were more on the hippie you know side of it or the political side of it kind of where the, the journey they took th- through that period. Then if then on, on a greater level, I can kind of look at someone like the Rolling Stones, who whose song Street Fighting Man from Beggar's Banquet was banned from being played in Chicago during the Chicago Convention in 1968 because of its revolutionary potential. And also, if you think of that, 1968, Mick Jagger um, marched, marched at one of the largest anti-war demonstrations in the history of um, England. He marched alongside Tariq Ali. Uh, and then, by the middle of the nineteen, by the middle of the nineteen seventies, Mick Jagger's hanging out with the aristocracy of Britain, and now he's Sir Mick. So it's it's just kind of how and 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 then. So as a lot of rock music became mainstream, and once again, it's because finally after Woodstock, Woodstock people Woodstock is always held up as this beautiful symbol of uh, peace, love, and brotherhood, and free music and all that kind of stuff. What people forget 
um, in today's understanding of it is that it was a marketing tool by Warner Brothers because pretty much every every group that was on there had some connection to the Warner Brothers label. And uh, consequently, once they fe- and Warner Brothers was to its credit, what, you know, they knew who to hire in terms of trying to reach this new rock and this new rock, psychedelic rock, so on and so forth culture, the hippie culture, the free culture. They they knew how to. They figured out who to hire to, to so that they could market to to this new this new counterculture subculture, um, but also how they could make a ton of money off it. And so, to their credit, they they did it. They they you know they sold the movie. The movie became made Woodstock bigger than at any other rock festival, um, and it became this ethos that was easily contrived and took a lot of the ugliness out of it. It was a lot easier to watch a movie than to actually go to a rock festival and hang out in the mud, and it worked for suburban America. But then there's the one of the things I mentioned in the book, when Woodstock was shown in some countries overseas, like, for example, in Greece, which was under the military dictators, it was the, at the time, um, they banned the showings because the showings of the movie turned into um, protests against the junta. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess the point is there is all this mishmash of politics and culture at that time. But by the end of the 70s, most mainstream rock, the Rolling Stones, even the Grateful Dead by then, uh, the Who, you know, the Beatles were, were long gone, Bob Dylan, all of them. They had kind of signed, you know, they went down to the crossroads, as they say, and they signed some kind of pact to make a ton of money. It changed their music a little bit, you know, and then the 80s saw a whole bunch of different changes in music. So... But as kind of like a counterweight to that, punk rock came along, and some punk, you know, it was it was in it was in direct reaction to the corporatization of rock, um, and some of it was actually quite overtly political. People like you know the Dead Kennedys, DOA, um, and the Clash, and so on. So I guess the point is that um, music served. It was it's, it served as a metaphor, but it was also a, it was a vehicle for people to communicate. And there was a common understanding when you walked down the st- when you were at a show that people, you know, everybody knew the songs, everybody understood what they were there for, and it was more than just at the beginning of the decade. It was more than just a um, a rock and roll concert. It was like a, a like a statement of solidarity, like going to a protest or something. By the end of the seventies, not so much, except within the punk world. And a little bit in the dead world, you know, so. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I I would say also just from the perspective of someone who did not live through that period, I can almost trace my own personal uh, development, both in terms of my musical taste and in terms of my own politics with a lot of the music of this period. Like, for instance, for instance, when I was in high school, um, you know, I got into, you know, the Doors and, you know, uh, the Grateful Dead and the Beatles and all of this stuff. By the time time I get into, you know, college, I'm listening to like Krautrock from Germany in the late 60s. And I'm listening to, you know, This Heat and a bunch of these other, you know, uh, early proto-punk bands and all mm-hmm. of this other stuff. By the time I, I moved to New York after college, I'm listening to Free Jazz and Ornette Coleman and Late Coltrane and all of this stuff. So there's almost a projection for me personally uh, that coincides with a lot of these tendencies that existed at that time. And it's almost like uncovering new layers of of what was happening historically every time I encountered a new genre that was active simultaneously in that period. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
you know, I think that I, and so to me, as I'm reading the book, I'm sort of experiencing a lot of these same kind of ideas that, that, that you're talking about. But there's also, I think, a sociological observation that you make uh, in the book that I think is actually quite fascinating in, in the sense that music really reflects the changing themes of this time period. And um, the transition from the 60s into the 70s, you have this transition from music that is overtly political that seeks to to change the world into music that becomes personal, that seeks to uh, uh, look inward and change the identity, and you kind of highlight things like glam rock and David Bowie and the and, and Lou Reed and that time of the seventies period as having abandoned the po- the politics and moved into the identity. So let's talk a little bit about that and how that music reflected that shift in the politics and the culture. That's a thank you. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, or brought it up. It's um, in the book. I talk about. I, I quote Dick Hebdick, who wrote a great book called Subculture. He's a British social critic, um, and he basically wrote it originally about the Teddy Boys and so on back in the fifties. And I think he wrote the book in the eighties, but then he added some extra chapters later on about punk and so on and glam rock. And he talks. He I think he, between him and Andrew Kopkin, who's one of the great American journalist of, of the last 50 years, um, between those two, they both talk about how glam rock was. And and I try to build on that, how, how, how it was kind of a reaction to the fact that revolution had been pretty much stifled the actual political revolution an actual cultural revolution. The cops had done their job. Um, there had been sellouts among the culture. You know, people took the big money from the corporations and the corporations and the politicians had done their best to stifle the more revolutionary elements of it. And so if if you can't change the world, you can change yourself. I think that's kind of somehow similar to what I how I put it in the book. And glam rock, you know, glam rock represented, let's say, like take David Bowie and Lou Reed um, in particular and maybe a couple of those guys um, from like the New York Dolls guys or something. And they, um, who build off of Bowie and Bowie and Lou Reed, um, they played with gender. And at, in the early seventies, uh, the Rolling Stones were playing with gender, specifically Mick Jagger. He was, you know, there's a movie that he put out that I think it's a Nicholas Rogue movie called performance, which is one of my favorite movies, but it's, it's, it's not a pretty picture where he, he kind of plays with, uh, Androgyny. He plays with, you know, you know, the third sex. I mean, basically, which is like kind of what Miley Cyrus is talking about now. You know, if if you know what I mean, if if you mm-hmm. if you um, where sexuality, your own personal sexuality becomes the ultimate. You know, becomes the ultimate expression of revolution and freedom. And in my opinion, it was a cop out. But that's just because, I, you know, for me, I guess it's because I'm more of a, a politically grounded person. And um, I see I see the whole sexuality thing as being one more ultimately being just a, a very individualistic, individualist expression um, and one of the ultimate expressions of where sexual of, of where identity politics can go. And I'm not saying I'm not making a judgment. At all. I'm, I'm just saying I think that's kind of why people did it. Yeah. And although consciously that's not what they were doing it's just kind of seemed to be the next barrier to break down um after say stonewall 
and as the women's as the women's movement became stronger and stronger people were the counterculture had broken down a lot of barriers in terms of sexuality um like you can sleep with whoever you want to but still it was primarily a, a male-oriented heterosexual culture by by the time by the middle of the 1970s that was not the case there was a lot of sexual experimentation going along outside of you know out, outside of heterosexual sexual relations you know and beyond in homosexual whatever and uh i guess the music just happened to be there at the right time and bowie to his you know to to his genius was was able to recognize it and someone else you know and was able to merchandise it along with his you know his the creative soul that he is and the same with lou reed they and lou reed they both played on that one wonders if it's because they they lived in well for example lou reed was a new york city boy at that time and bowie who had been around for quite a while actually as a mod and then as a as a hippie um was living in london and became ziggy stardust which totally changed the way people saw rock and roll stars yeah you know ron i i agree with all of that and i think and i know that you're being let's say a bit polite about it but i and i'm not this is the only time i'm going to do this in our conversation i promise but i want to read a a very brief quote from exactly the part of the book that you're talking about um you you write quote Looking at the phenomenon in a more political way, the gender-bending scene was a form of surrender. By the time David Bowie and Lou Reed had popularized the style, there was an overall cynicism with politics and music uh, with a political message. The general feeling was that the 60s revolution had failed. So, if one couldn't change the world, why not change one's identity in such a way that was not only radical, but said fuck you to the powers that be and middle-brow America. No class organization was required and now that last sentence to me is really what hits it why i wanted to bring up that that excerpt of the book i agree with everything you're saying but to me the salient point is that no class organization is required that it is stripped away of any social and uh uh, socio-economic conflict and rather everything has become an internal conflict which comes back to what we said at the beginning is sanitizing the entire politics of the period thank you for reading that quote (laughs) i was struggling to find what i was going to say there (laughs) um yeah and i think it's kind of that's one of the ultimate expressions of the whole transition from class politics as represented in its various forms by the new left, by, uh, by the black Panthers, uh, where there were, there was a mix, you know, the class and race issues in the United States were combined. Um, and the transition from there into identity politics, uh, there's things that want, you know, sexual liberation became gender identity. Um, women's liberation became feminism, uh, and political rock and roll just became non-existent. There's a not, there's a, I think the class struggle was a very difficult thing for so many, for so many people to, to, to understand. And I think when the war in Vietnam ended or when the war in Vietnam ended, that a lot of people who had really never really had any class understanding anyhow, for whatever reason, whether it was because it was based on their class interests or whether it was just because they 
didn't get into politics that deeply. Uh, they surrendered. They surrendered to their own the old, their own individualist um, desires, which is kind of what happens a lot in a in a society like the United States. Which, but I would say I would say that though that's a that's the critical moment because you write about it in the book that right at this moment that this retreat from class uh, struggle and class politics is happening is precisely the moment that the economic system is collapsing at the time in which the gap between the the rich and the poor is expanding when unemployment is skyrocketing when inflation is skyrocketing at precisely the moment that you would think class would be the central issue it's pushed into the background and I can't help but see, you know, I'm not necessarily meaning in a conspiratorial sense, but but that the culture and the masters of culture, the 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 capitalists, the record company executives, and all of the rest of them, that they wanted class to be pushed into the background so that they so that they wouldn't have to deal with the kind of upheaval that you saw ten years earlier. Oh, I, I yeah, I would I agree with that. I mean, I I would agree, and I don't think it was conspiratorial. I mean, it's one of those kind of things. It's a conspiracy of capitalism and just how it works to serve to serve the interests of capitalism. And I'm, there's I'm, I believe at the same time you're right. There's a conscious effort by, like say promoters or whoever does that in the record business to promote a certain kind of music. You could see that with hip hop as political hip hop disappeared yes. and. And the more gangster stuff came in, and then after that, whatever it is now, I haven't really not paid much attention to hip hop since the early two thousands. But I, I just you you can see when they I, I think that's a I think that's a really salient point, and it makes a lot of sense that there was this effort. Another element of music that that started coming to the forefront was what I call what was called redneck rock, which you know Leonard Skinner, uh, mm -hmm. people like that, which was basically trying to produce promote. A redneck ethos, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean a uh, super racist ethos, um, but you know, obviously, there's elements of racism in there because that's part of that's part of what people, a redneck is in a lot in in a general sense. And but what it was trying to promote was this once again the whole idea, the frontiersman, the guy. You know, I I'm the simple man. I live up in the woods. I got my gun. You know. You know, I get drunk if someone messes with my woman, I shoot them and my woman. You know, that whole kind of, once again, going back to the individualist thing that glam rock also promoted. Um, that's, And like you point out, it was right as the economy was starting to really stumble after the uh, crisis of the various crises of 1972 and 73. And it was also Nixon, the, the political system was in complete and total, you know, more more than ever before, people were really cynical about politics because of Watergate, mm -hmm. and then Nixon's part, the pardon of Nixon a month after he resigned, and this is all happening in 74, 75, when, when Bowie and those guys were really taking, you know, t taking the rock and roll world by this by a storm. So that's a that's a very interesting point. I it's hard. It would be interesting to look further and try and to try and discover how intentional. It was, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, when I say, I think what I mean, uh, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, when conspiratorial sense, not necessarily in, you know, three guys in a room master planning all of this, but rather that the the, the forces of capital conspired with each other to make sure that what they experienced in the 60s was not going to happen again. It was not going to be an upsurge. And I think that goes back to what you said earlier about uh, Dylan's album Desire, for example, that I think that there were a lot of people in the record industry and elsewhere who were, well, maybe a little bit uneasy about the fact that here was this already icon who was bringing back this notion of, you know, political protest music. Absolutely. Um, well, anyway, let's take a break. On the other side of the break, I got a lot more that I want to talk about with you, including some of these same issues. And um, I want to bring it forward to today because one of the things that I want to make sure is that uh, younger people who didn't live through this period have an understanding of how this is all relevant for us today. So anyway, let's take a break. On the other side of the break, continue the conversation with Ron Jacobs, again, the author of Daydream Sunset. Uh, get yourself a copy right off the Counterpunch website. Uh, my name's Eric Dreitzer. Just stick with us. We'll be right back. She was born in a school bus on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Her parents had driven from the San Francisco Bay. It was late December of 1968, and the skies were filling with the darkness of hate. Bobby and Martin were long gone. The flower children were singing the very last song. Nixon was heading to that big white house and the bombs would soon be dropping on the children's clouds. But a So wild and so free 
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. Um, I'm chatting with Ron Jacobs. He is the author, once again, of the book Daydream Sunset, available from Counterpunch. Get it right off the website. Um, Ron, you know, we, we talked about this this uh, look inward that is reflected in some of the, um, let's call it, identity-based music of the, of the mid-1970s. And I think that more broadly speaking, that it wasn't just about uh, sexual identity and personal identity that there was also a retreat into what I would call, you know, spiritual identity and spiritualism or metaphysical identity. And you see that in a number of different in a number of different ways. And you talk a little bit about that in the book. So I guess what I want to ask you, not so much is whether or not you can point to many examples of that, but I mean, is that also an example of a sort of a retreat from the failure of the revolution, or is it merely just a natural progression? Um, how do you see it in terms of the spirituality that's born in this period? I think it was part of the retreat more than anything else. I think people kind of got scared, especially white people after Kent State, after the murders at Kent State, and when they, when the the intensification of police repression that occurred um, once Nixon took power and and went on for quite a while afterwards, uh, it, it became too hard to go out on the streets for a lot of people. So I think a lot of people just decided to, like you say, look inward or look or look to church or so on. And then of course the churches were doing their damnedest to try to get this new market. I mean, there was these things. The 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 Christian churches, the fundamentalist Christian churches really got their start, I would say, uh, you know, got a big start during that period. There was these groups called what we used to, they were called Jesus Freaks. Um, mm-hmm. And basically they were long-haired, they were hippie Christians, and they would go around trying, you know, they would go around uh, proselytizing at rock festivals, they'd proselytize out in front of um, rock concerts, they proselytize in church, they they proselytized at school. They they were everywhere. They were at, they were at protests, and they were truly competing. And I think they were trying to take advantage of the the hole that had been left in a lot of people who had been political in 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 their search for the truth or whatever. And I think also they they there was a concerted effort to to pull them away from left wing communists and anarchists. Um, ideas that were that were quite popular i mean if you think about it in 1970 there was a poll done by time magazine or or one of those um time or gallup where something like 35 percent of american college students considered themselves revolutionaries uh left revolutionaries so there there was a, a serious fear that was that the establishment was experiencing and religion what they prefer of course in america they preferred the, that it would be christian religion but there was other phenomenon like the uh the Guru Maharaji, um, which, and a couple of these other, like, East, got supposedly you know, Eastern, Eastern-oriented um, spiritualists, along with a, a new and a, a growing interest in the what we nowadays call the New Age spiritualism, which actually got a got, really got going in the um, in the early seventies, I would say, when you started seeing it in health food stores and a lot of, when you would walk into a head shop, instead of there being political posters everywhere, there was a lot more posters about meditation, about finding your soul, go to this meeting, you know, um, go to church, that kind of stuff. So it was, I think a lot of it was intentional 
at least on the part of the more, uh, at least on the part of the Christian churches. Yeah, for sure. I, I would agree with that. And I would also say, you know, that that is also reflected in the music. I mean, if you're reading through the book, you you kind of chart, for instance, the um, evolution of a, of a band like the Grateful Dead and to, to the point by the 1970s where they're literally out living in the country and their songs are literally about, you know, spiritual and metaphysical and, you know, the harvest and this, that, you know, all of these various, um, call them pastoralist, you know, ideas. And I think that um, to some degree, not only is that a retreat, but it's almost like an admission that the only victory that we could possibly achieve is the creation of one tiny little space within which we can have our little sanctuary, uh, irrespective of everything that's happening around us. Absolutely. I mean, if it, there's an interesting story um, about regarding the Grateful Dead specifically in that in 1970, they put out a couple albums and one of the albums was called Working Man's Dead. And uh, the original on the back cover, it's a picture of the of the band and they're kind of dressed up kind of as a coal miners or some kind of working man kind of thing out of the late 18, late 19th century in West the United U.S. West. And originally they were going to all have guns. Um, that was the idea of one of the drummers, I believe, or maybe the the songwriter, one of the songwriters. But in but they made a conscious decision to take the guns out of there just because this was right when there was a lot of talk of picking up the gun among white revolutionaries and so on. And they made a conscious decision. No, we're not going to do this. We're going to pull back. We're not going to add to violence. This is how they explain it. And so they pulled back. And then, like you said, by, like by 1973, they were writing well, the, the album you're referring to is Wake of the Flood, which is a very, very much about let's go out into the country and just live our lives and ignore ignore society and examine ourselves and try to, you know, have a spiritual revolution since we're, this other revolution, obviously, we're not going to pull off. Yeah, and I think that that leads us into another important subject, and you tackle it uh, repeatedly throughout the book, but it's something that I think is oftentimes not discussed, and that is the divide between the white, middle-class, quote-unquote, hippie and counterculture, and the the people of color uh, in you know working-class neighborhoods, communities of color, uh, particularly in some of the major cities, because, of course, at the time that you have all of these protests against the war and whatever, you have uprisings in dozens and dozens of cities throughout the country. Uh, every major city has an uprising of its of its black people, uh, which you know the media now I think refer even then and now refers to as you know riots and and you know these right. other phenomenons. But all of these things were happening simultaneously, and so I want to talk a little bit about this separation of quote unquote counterculture with a capital C and the non-white counterculture because. Because really, when we say counterculture in the popular mind, where people associate that with white counterculture and middle class counterculture. So um, let's talk about that. And how does that relate to these issues of class uh, at this time period? I've thought about this a lot. And I've, you know, for I mean, I was thinking about it back then. And, I, and I've thought about it since. And it's a it's a challenging question because the cult, you know, cultural phenomenon represent the 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 situate the political situation of whatever country and whatever epoch we happen to be in. I mean, I think that's one of like Trotsky's thing is about you can't create a working class culture because one because 
it has to come out of a working class government. You know what I mean? Of a working class political setup. And so the United States was was and is the ultimate bourgeois to you know, to use some of that terminology, the ultimate bourgeois society and so ultimately the counter the white counterculture especially was a bourgeois was a bourgeois culture. It was mm-hmm. part of the part of the bourgeois culture. Um and that ultimately means that it was predominantly white. Ulti- interestingly, though, at the same time, it drew, just like so much of a U.S. culture does, popular culture especially, it drew tons of its inspiration and literally stole some of its works, almost note for note or whatever, from the African-American culture of the United States and other and Latino cultures and other, you know, um, non-white cultures that exist within the borders or of the of the country. Uh it came together on occasion. I write about it a little bit in the books. Um, instances like uh, the Free Angela Davis movement um, was that was, and certain elements, certain times when the Black Panthers were under were under heavy duty police repression, uh, the white counterculture bands would would get together, write songs about it, or at least put on benefit concerts and so on to support the the defense funds. But there was still a, a clear separation. Uh, when, if you went to pretty much any, you look at footage of pretty much any rock festival that occurred, um, you're not going to see a lot of, it's mostly white faces. Yep. And I think it's just, repre- I, I don't know how to, exactly how to explain it other than it's, that it's representative of how the, how U.S. culture is and truly was back then. I think there's more, there's, there's, there's more crossover now, nowadays between the different kinds of between different kinds of music and who attends what shows and so on but i would my guess is that it's still pretty much it's still pretty much audiences still pretty much look the same as they always have it's yeah, I, I think that there's a there's a natural tendency towards a sort of segregation based on right. not just the genre of the music, but also the, the the culture from which it comes from. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about my you know shows I went to in college or festivals I would go to, you know, Coachella or something like mm-hmm. this. And I mean, you would see you know a band like Radiohead, you're not going to find a lot of black faces in that right. audience. You know, there could be tens of thousands of people, and there's going to be tens of thousands of white people. So I think that. Um, Versus, like, for instance, if you go on YouTube right now and you look up, you know, say, some of those concerts from Nina Simone in that time period or, you know, even, I don't know, Sly and the Family Stone, whatever, you know, you're going to have a you're going to have a different sense of what that time period was about, you know, and I think that that separation is important and that oftentimes gets lost in uh, our backwards looking perspective on that period. Yeah, I would say Sly and the Family Stone were the anomaly. Uh, and, and it was a conscious effort by Sly, you know, to to create, to go beyond race. I mean, that was one of the intentions of him forming the group in the first place uh, was racial tolerance and, you know, let's all just have a good time kind of thing. Um, then someone like Nina Simone, she went out of her way to try and just like Sly, it was an intentional thing on her, on her, her effort to, to go beyond just strictly racial audiences. I remember going to a concert, um, a James Brown concert in like 1972, and he was supporting Richard Nixon at the time, which a lot of African-American performers, mostly it seems like from the South, did. And I think, I have no idea why. My guess is because the Republican Party was identified with the party of Lincoln um, Mm -hmm. and so on. But, you know, when I went to that concert, 
it was mostly GIs who were there, but most of the white people who were there were Germans. There wasn't a lot of um, white Americans there at all. I was one of the few who was there. And uh, I just happened to go because a buddy of mine got me a ticket. One, a GI got me a ticket and said I should go check him out because, you know, he's, he, his thing was like, you don't understand music till you see James Brown. Um, <laughs> but if you look, I mean, I noticed that when I was just at that Grateful Dead Fairly Well thing last week. You know, this is a crowd of around 100,000 people. And the number of African-American people I saw was probably was definitely less than 100. You know, there's a there's an interesting I mean, we could probably do a long episode just talking about the issues of race and music and how those things are reflected. And, you know, one of the things that uh, my my interests are also very heavily in jazz. And if you and if you uh, if you read the accounts and, and you watch the, the, the concerts and you look at the record sales, I mean, most American jazz performers of this time period had far more success in Europe than they ever did in the United States. The audiences were exponentially larger in Europe. They had exponentially higher record sales in Europe. And I mean, everybody from superstars like Miles Davis to, you know, obscure, you know, free jazz performers. So there, you know, what you're getting at also, there's a clear distinction, not just white and black. There's a very clear distinction in America and how America treated its music. Yes, yes. And I would say a lot of that is a good part of it is related to the, uh, nature of the business uh i mean they used to as you well i'm sure you well know back in before the pretty much before the 60s they used to have they would make race records and they would never be allowed to be played on white radio stations so Mm -hmm. they would get a white artist to re-record it like a pat boone or somebody to re-record the record so it could and then it would become a bigger hit for the white performer even though it was usually a much poorer rendition and uh very little of that money would go back to the original artist. And that's the history of so much rock music that, you know, Rolling, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, so on, you know, they were accused of stealing literally note for note songs from, uh, from, from African, from black artists to their credit. Once they were called on it, they went and they paid a bunch of money and paid and gave money to the artists and set up funds and so on. But it was only when they were called on it that this happened, despite the fact they were consciously ripping off the artists. Exactly. You know, I want to shift gears in this final portion of our conversation, Ron, and um, I want to talk about something that, you know, obviously looms enormous in this entire time period. It is the defining, it's not even an event, really. It's the defining, you know, theme of the whole time period, really, and that's the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, you tell a funny story in the book that I really appreciated of what you and your friends did the day that the war officially ended. And, um, you know, so you could talk a little bit about that if you'd like, but what I want to get at here is how this relates to people and to young people, especially today, because one of the differences I find, and I don't know that anybody's really ever discussed this in, in any detail, is that the in the 60s and the 70s, if you were politically involved and you came of age politically in that period, you can remember a time and place where you were when Vietnam ended, when there was a sense of completion to this, where there was a sense of, you know, the, the, the forces of anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism triumph in Vietnam, and somehow there's a, you know, a coda and a finishing moment. And I think that, you know, if you look at the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war and this 
entire period. Um, it's gone on for as long as Vietnam, in fact, a bit longer now. And I think that the difference here is that these wars are endless, that there is no end point, there is no defining moment, there is no uh, uh, watershed or anything like that. And it's almost like the difference between victory and defeat is is it's arbitrary. And so people who have come of age in this time period, they don't really identify with, quote unquote, the war, the way that people of a previous generation did. So let's talk a little bit about that. And, and, and what effect does that have on the psyche of young people? I think it creates a lot of cynicism. Um, I think it creates the idea, and not just among young people, uh, well, I'm just going to ignore it. You, you can't do anything about the government. You know, it's just the government and the war makers. They're always going to make war. They're going to, you know, so I'm, I'm just going to take care of what I can take care of, whether it's, even if I'm a political person, I'm going to worry more. I'm going to try to end uh, the use of the Confederate flag, or I'm going to try to make it, you know, a better world just in my community. I'm going to, you know, and stuff like that. I think it also creates... I mean, let's. I just let me talk about the wars for a minute. And the wars are intentionally waged to go on forever. It's you know, and I'm, and I believe that the war, the the way they've been waged, it's not low intensity conflict like the 1980s wars of the United States against Nicaragua, and El Salvador and the Honduras. Um, but it's also not the all-out war that Vietnam was, or even the all-out war that the the first Gulf War was, and the second the second Gulf invasion, second, second Iraq invasion was instead we have these wars that make, make billions and billions of dollars for the war industry. And they just go on and people die. And the, when the, when it's an American who dies, it doesn't even make the front page anymore. Uh, and when it's an Afghan or an Iraqi or someone, forget it, who cares? I mean, that's, I mean, I don't, that's the sentiment. That's not what I'm saying personally, of course. Um, but, uh, and I think it creates a distance, a, a genuine distance between the people of a of the war making nation and the government and the elements of that na- the industry in that nation that makes the war. And ultimately, it produ- it provides us with situations like the Bernie Sanders candidacy, where he's perceived as being real, 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 real radical. Um, when in reality, I speak from personal knowledge, living in Vermont um, on labor issues, he is very radical. He's one of the most radical, you know, since, since I mean, probably since, I don't know if there ever was a candidate who had, who supported labor as much as Bernie has in the state of Vermont. Uh, but he's also a warmonger. I mean, he, he supports the military industrial complex every chance he can. And he's not bashful about it. Uh, he, he goes back and forth on his, his support for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I think it's most, I think the primary reason he does that is because the state he comes from is quite an anti-war state. Um, and he, he wants to get reelected. So he kind of, well, and also, and, and also, to be fair, it's very it's it's easy for him to take an anti-war position right. when it's sure. a Republican war. You know yeah. what I mean? But when it's a war waged on Yugoslavia by Clinton, right. or whether it's a war waged on Libya one, by Obama, he's a warmonger yeah. to the core. Yeah, yeah, and he can even if he votes against the war and he votes against the war funding, it's a safe vote because everybody else is going to you know it's going to pass no matter what. Yeah, you know, just because that's how it's set up. But anyhow, to go back to that whole thing about 
it's it's difficult to I think part of it is I mean one thing Nixon learned and was and the draft and there was an actual a, a a very very it was easy to see the change among my friends once the draft was ended um, about there you know a lot of them quit going to anti-war protests so it was more the anti-war protests became much more anti-imperialist in nature um, but they also became smaller and you know so instead of having hundreds of thousands you might have. 50,000 or something, which is still a substantial amount, especially in relation to today. But you could, you could feel the difference. Like I, you know, and that, that goes back to the, uh, kind of weeding out the politics and the, especially the class, the class element of the understanding in, during the seventies that occurred across the board in the culture, in the music, and, and definitely in the political, the, among the popular left movement. And that existed at the time. Yeah, you know, and one of the other things that I want to just add is that um, for for me, the you know the, the the transformative process, the transformative moment or series of moments for just in my own political development happened around uh, Afghanistan and especially around the Iraq War, two thousand two, two thousand three, when I was in college and. Um, the thing is that I came to realize very quickly that, um, and then by 2008, this was already a clear, um, you know, self-evident truth that even the anti-war movement that existed was a wholly owned subsidiary of the capitalist system that Mm -hmm. it was entirely funded by foundations or almost entirely funded by powerful foundations which were you know set up by wall street financiers and the and the ruling establishment and as soon as uh the republican uh the republican warmonger was out and mr hope and change came in all of a sudden the anti-war movement collapsed and there so it's not just a, a matter of cynicism about that, but I think that there is an actual real world, you know, tried and true knowledge that all of these things that we thought were substantive and real really turned out to be actually quite ephemeral. And I think that that's a it's a rude awakening for somebody like me. And then it, it sets me in uh, distinction from a lot of the people who used to attend anti-war rallies along with me in 2003, who are now, you know, Democratic party traditional right. liberals whatever you want to say pro obama and so forth and so at least i guess from my perspective it sort of really informed uh all of my politics yeah you know i i you're absolutely right i try to when people challenge me with that when i say if i'm out trying to do some organizing or i'm giving a talk or something when when people challenge me i really don't saying exactly what you're saying i don't really have a response because it's true I mean, it, it's it's very true that the Democrats basically manipulated the anti-war movement. I mean, there are some of us who were saying that when it was going on, uh, but it was it was dismissed because everybody, the people who knew that, still wanted hoped hoped in their own way that they could move it to a to a more of an anti-imperialist uh, movement and so on. Whereas other people who knew better, in my mind. What actually said, well, you know, we don't want it to be anti-imperialist because we want as many people out there as possible. And the argument I always gave was, and this happened back in the in, in the anti-war movement against Vietnam as well. But I I I think the difference was there was a more openness to anti-imperialist elements. The Democratic Party uh, had not figured out how to channel the anti-war and the anti-racist 
elements that that exist in the United States. They had not figured out how to channel them into essentially harmless campaigns for a candidate who was going to say one thing and then do what they all do. And then also there was, it was an open, that period was an open time in terms of the acceptance of left ideas, communism, left anarchism, socialism, and so on. And nowadays what we get instead is a socialism that isn't a socialism and anarchism that isn't an anarchism and communism doesn't even, you know, if you say you're a communist, people either look at you blankly or they, they move away. Yeah. Like you're, you're a, you're a leper. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The red baiting, the red baiting has been so incredible. And you can't, I don't think I can, you can't blame it all on the Democrats because we did experience, I mean, we've experienced 40 years of right-wing backlash essentially um yeah but you know i've talked about i've talked about this with other people as well i actually just i think uh two weeks ago on this program talking about it with glenn ford of black agenda report mm-hmm. that that um part of the difference between the discourse of the 60s and the kind of discourse that you have today and what's acceptable and not acceptable and uh, to a large extent is the fact that there is no international socialist movement of any kind it does not exist the way that it existed at that time so when you had you know all, uh black panthers reading Franz Fanon and talking about Mao and talking about, you know, Leninism, Marxism, Leninism, and all of this. I mean, that would breed a certain kind of discourse, whereas today, it, I mean, you're, you have quote-unquote socialists talking about the need to have humanitarian war in Libya and Syria and all of these other places. I mean, the kind of cognitive dissonance that that, that, that requires, I think, is it's breathtaking. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, as you as you're saying that, and I'm thinking about it, I wonder how much of that is related to the destruction of the Soviet Union. I mean, the Soviet a lot, Union, a lot of it, yeah, well, yeah, with all of its faults. Yeah, exactly. Um, it represented a revolution. You know, it 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 did support national liberation struggles and revolutions around the world, and so did the Chinese in their own way. And now both of those are, you know. The Russian, the Russians are want to be imperialists. They want to challenge the ultimate imperialist power, the United States, and the, uh, you know, and the Chinese and the Russian economies are both authoritarian capitalist economies. I mean, there's, there's no. I mean, to, I would say to the Ch- the Chinese, Chinese's credit, they are responding a little bit to the massive waves of worker strikes that they've been having ever since they went full tilt capitalism, but at the same time. They're a capitalist country, and so and and so so is the uh, so is Russia. So it's, it's so it's interesting, and I don't know how it is in Europe. I haven't been in Europe in a long time. I know in Latin America we have a variety of different, you know, all, like socialist leaning um, economies and so on, and they definitely do what they can within the world economy to make things better for the working people of their of their countries, but. That's a that's a really good point. Is that you don't have that sense of international solidarity. I mean, I can re- if you think about it. I was in I was in Germany because my father was in the military, so I was state. My, we had moved over to Germany right before the U.S. invasion of Cambodia, and I was there for about a month and a half. And then Nixon invaded Cambodia, and there was plenty of demonstrations to go to that same day, mostly sponsored by German students, and their interest was in what the Americans were thinking. And so, like you said, there was a a broad sense of international solidarity. And I don't know how much that exists. I think maybe the last time we saw something like that 
was during the anti um well the the beginnings of the anti-war movement um in 2002 but also the anti-capitalist globalization stuff that went on from 1999 through the early 2000s yeah and you know i would say um that uh, the thing about Russia and China, I would, I, I don't know that I totally agree with the idea that Russia is a, you know, a, a wannabe imperialist state. I think that what Russia is trying to do is trying to assert itself against the global empire and That's basically, and, and yeah. basically say not necessarily that we want to be a global empire, but that we want to be able to do what we do without being under attack by the global mm-hmm. empire at all mm-hmm. times. And you know, interesting story. I don't know if you caught this. Uh, it came out this week that. Um, in a book that's been that's that's about to come out, or I think it already did come out, about former uh, Uruguayan president uh, Ho, uh, Mujica, and he tells the story of ins- having inside information that at the moment that Hugo Chavez was almost going to go to war with Colombia over Colombia's aggression against Venezuela right. and, uh, on the border, on, on the Pu- FARC stuff, yeah, yep. around the FARC stuff. Putin went to Venezuela and spoke to Chavez and told him flat out that Russia would help defend Venezuela if war were to break out and the U.S. were to be supporting Colombia. Now, I'm not saying that that's the same thing as the USSR supporting, you know, national liberation struggles in Africa, but I think that there is some sense of that still going on today, at least in regards to fighting against this global imperial system. And what it is, is certainly it's not socialism against capitalism anymore, but I think in the in regards to China and in regards to Russia, both of them, you have a form of quasi-state capitalism or national mm-hmm. uh, economic system versus what they perceive to be global neoliberal capital. And I think that that's really what the conflict is, not so much capitalism versus socialism, but I think that the contours of it remain the same. That's an interesting thought. I'll have to look more into that. I like that. That's a more hopeful analysis than the one i've been using so well, that's the that's the that's that's what i consider to be the uh anti-imperialist uh uh position in the 21st century uh-huh. that is to say uh recognizing what the global imperial force is and then trying to support any movements that are in opposition to it whether they're in latin america whether they're in africa whether they're in russia or china or anywhere else that makes sense yeah um, okay, well, we're about to we're about to uh, go over the over our time period here, but let me just finish with one other thought. And um, by the way, what I just said gets me a lot of flack on a lot of people. Oh, I'm on, sure on, it does. I was just Believe thinking. Me. I can think of a lot of people who'd be jumping down your throat. <laughs> Believe me, but that's okay. Yeah. I've, I've, no, been, I've been I've been pilloried good. publicly many times. Um, yeah, that's it's good too because it does help create a help. It helps me create a, a a deeper understanding because so many times when I say something. Not exactly like that, but similar. People are like, accuse me of like supporting dictators and stuff like that. Oh, and I'm, like, no, no, you're missing the point here. You yeah, know, yeah, you know, I God, the the Libya thing was a was a litmus test for me. To be honest with you, you know how many people publicly bashed me for saying anything positive about Gaddafi? I was like, wait a second, I, yeah, do you not yeah. know anything about what happened in Libya before Gaddafi got there, or what Libya is like now? I mean, right. give, you know, anyway, yeah. can't go into all of that right okay, now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I just want to close with one other thought, though. Um, This book, again, Daydream Sunset, you know, available from Counterpunch, I think it's an excellent book insofar as a record of a a distinct time period. But I think that the importance of it, at least for me, is 
how it relates to younger people today as well, what they're supposed to take out of it, because I think that there's a lot of universal themes that are really important here. So let's just draw that out a little bit here in closing. What are some of the things that you would want a young person who didn't live through that time period to take away from reading this book? That's a challenging question. I think one of them, one of the things would be the an understanding of how important culture can be in building and sustaining an anti, you know, anti-establishment, anti-capitalist uh, structure and and movement and so on. I think another thing that they, and staying with the idea of the culture, is to understand how the limitations that culture can have and that it can be co-opted, that it can be bought off, that it can be destroyed. Um, especially if, if it, if it's, if it retreats from its politics or its class or its understanding of class, I think, um, it's also, and this is a double edged thing. It, it proves that, that, you know, you can you you can build something and you can have hope in that something, but at the same time, hope isn't enough. Uh, I'm not sure if that's answering what you're you're asking. No, but I, think, I think it definitely is. And look, I, let's take a phrase like "hope isn't enough." What could what could better encapsulate people who have come of age during the age of Obama? I yeah, mean, that is that is that, yeah. that is the yeah. ultimate encapsulation of what we need to take away from the last eight years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hope hope is nothing. <laughs> it's a marketing it's a marketing scheme, that's all it is. Yeah, yeah. And that's I and I think, you know, one other thing and this is just to go back to the idea that culture represents the time it exists in and the ruling class of the time it exists in. And so if one is trying to build intentionally, which I believe the 60s counterculture was intentional, um is is if one is trying to build a uh, culture to oppose the mainstream culture they have to recognize the challenges. They have to recognize that the challenges build into that. The challenges um, build into understanding that if you want distribution, and this is something that I believe Counterpunch in any journal like that operates under, the understanding that to use the master's distribution networks is a tricky, tricky thing because especially in terms of culture, I, I you know, for example, Jefferson Airplane was being sold by RCA. RCA at that time was the third highest defense contractor in the United States. Um, we And there's so many exam- examples of that now. Rage Against the Machine in the 90s, same thing. I mean, Rage was a revolutionary band, mm-hmm. but but they were being distributed by the, the defense industry, essentially. So, But then you have bands like Crass or someone, you know, um, who... And, or um, who was that band out of um, Ian McKay, the Fugazi? Fugazi, yeah. And and they always tried to have their own alternative distribution networks, and so they were more like a voice crying in the wilderness. But not a lot of people heard them. So it's, there's all these issues that come up, and those are unresolved. But there are things that if people want to build an, an alternative revolutionary culture that it challenges the the mainstream, they have to remember that the politics are important and that. That extends all the way to how you distribute it, how you create it, and how you maintain it. Well said. I couldn't agree more. Uh, with that, I think we'll have to we'll have to end it there again. Um, 
pick up the book. It's an excellent book. It's a quick read. You'll 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 buzz through it because it's just. I mean, it's so. Um, I mean, it's fun. There's a lot of interesting stories. A lot of the stuff maybe you know. A lot of the stuff is probably stuff you don't know. So anyway, uh, Daydream Sunset: The '60s Counterculture in the in the '70s. Um, available from Counterpunch. Get it through the website. Ron Jacobs, I want to thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thanks so much. And we will speak to you again next week. 